the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Nick, welcome. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It was a bit weird. It's not a Guinness, isn't it, actually? But I don't know if they... Uh, did, did Brewdog do Guinness? I don't know. I'm, I'm not too sure. But I uh, uh, lived in Scotland a while, so uh, yeah, big fan of them. <laughs> That's a tasty drop, actually. Cool, good. So, Nick, welcome. Thank you very much for being Thanks here. Re- really excited for this episode today. Um, so I guess by way of introduction, Nick, you're a, an entrepreneur. Yep. You are the founder and CTO of a company called Connect Earth. And um, that, I'm sure we'll go into that in a lot more detail and you'll be uh, far better to explain it than I, but um, it seems like a really exciting, uh, you know, tech startup um, to help companies track their carbon footprint uh, more accurately and uh, obviously help with all the reporting around um, carbon accountability and sustainability and that kind of thing. Um, So I think we can all agree that's a really kind of worthwhile mission, um, you know, that you guys are embarking upon and a really interesting domain as well. So I'd be really interested to pick your brains on sort of your approach to that in terms of the platform you're building. Um, but before we go into that, I always like to start with just hearing a little bit more about you, your, your background and how you got into technology in the first place. So, uh, yeah, if you'd be so kind, um, yeah, give us an overview of, of, you know, kind of your background, how you got into tech and, and we'll go from there. Yeah, of course. Thanks a lot for, for having me, Guy. Um, yeah, so, uh, I'm Nick, I'm the CTO and, uh, co-founder of Connect Earth. We're an environmental data company based out of London. Um, what we, what our mission is, is, is a company is to break down the barriers towards accessing some of the leading environmental data and tools. So we work with some of the leading university research groups to package uh, some of these really high quality carbon emissions data models and, uh, and, and, and data itself and make it accessible through code and through APIs. We like to think of it, and there's a big movement in the climate space, which traditionally was done all on Excel files and uh, towards the the software and API-ification of this whole climate space. And I think we'll touch upon this probably uh, later on, but really, really interesting time to be in uh, in the climate space as well and a merging of many different sectors. So uh, yeah. me a bit uh, more about myself. So um, my background's mainly in, in climate tech and AI and software engineering. So uh, studied uh, AI and software engineering in Scotland. So where yeah. Brewdog is also based. Yeah. I actually saw one of the founders present in the uh, Social Enterprise World Forum, uh, which was really nice to see. But very early days was really, really passionate about how I could use my technology skills uh, in the intersection with social impact and environment. So um, from university, became very, very passionate about how I could use tools for good, going to hackathons and making environmental data and tools more accessible, Chrome extensions that could estimate the emissions of what you bought on Amazon. Mm. Um, and uh, from that, created my my first company, which was uh, in the open banking and climate tech space. So when open banking was just recently legalized in the UK, and what we did was we allowed users to connect their bank accounts to our, to an app and used the UK's EEIO environmental data in order to allow them to understand the emissions of, of what they purchased. So that was kind of my, my first experience really into the climate and carbon modeling space as a, as a CTO. Later, went to work at Amazon as a software engineer 
on uh, their soft lines and climate pledge friendly features. It was uh, the fashion part of the Amazon website and apps. And uh, it was a first introduction of a functionality that allowed users to see sustainability credentials of products and have an understanding of, uh, of, of the sustainability of their purchasing decisions. So that was a, a really interesting glimpse, learned a ton at, at Amazon as well. And then fundamentally, uh, a year and a half, two years ago, started uh, started Connect Earth uh, with my co-founder Alex. Um, the story is quite quite funny, and uh, and I have to thank my my partner, my girlfriend, uh, which I owe everything to. She got into uh, Entrepreneur First, which is one of the leading kind of global uh, startup incubators, and I just thought that was so cool, and it's something that that I was just really really wanting as well. And I asked her, "Can you please refer me?" So we pretended through the whole program that we didn't know each other pretty much, <laughs> um, but I owe everything. To, to her, and, and it's where I met my my brilliant co-founder. I've never never met someone I think as dedicated as Alex, and we started uh, the basically the business Connect Earth. Um, very early on, we had a mission of how can we do our part in climate change? What's the biggest thing we can work on right now? And uh, through through that journey, which I can touch a, a bit more on, we t- talked to some of the heads of sustainability at some of the largest companies in the world. Um, we also saw that. Fundamentally, consumers and businesses had no idea what their environmental impact was mm. and how to reduce their emissions. Mm. You go doing these daily actions, have no idea how that's impacting the planet. And, um, and also that even though you can't necessarily point the finger at individuals, uh, households uh, influence up to 60% of global emissions. So they have the power to influence purchasing decisions to go to greener companies, greener suppliers, and in, in that way shift global emissions uh, to, to, to reduce. So maybe not pointing the finger, but mm. saying, hey, you, you as an individual have the power to, uh, to, to choose to purchase more sustainably. Mm-hmm. And if you just empower them with the right data and tools, um, you can help reduce global emissions and improve kind of climate awareness. Fantastic. Wow, that's a really, really interesting story. I love the, uh, I love the, the, you know, how you guys got together and, uh, you know, coming through the, 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 the sneaky route through your, your other half. That's lovely. But no, I think it's, um, it's a great story and a really worthwhile mission, like you say. And I think the, um, it goes without saying, you know, carbon modeling is obviously an incredibly complex problem, you know, that involves analyzing lots of different data sources. And uh, it appears, to be a very rich and um, you know interesting problem that you can approach from a data science perspective, yet from a lot of the conversations I have in the market, um, yeah, it's still a relatively niche space. You know, there's not that many people working in it, even though it's a problem that you know is affecting everybody, um, you know, in the planet. Um, it's still an area that a lot of people don't necessarily know a huge amount about or haven't really um, done a huge amount in it. But but when we speak to people about it, you know that the the movement towards tech for good. Yeah, we're certainly seeing, I think since the pandemic, a lot of the better candidates out there in the market are, are genuinely really interested on a daily basis about the types of problems they're solving. You know, it's not just about going in and doing the job anymore. They really want to know that you know, what they're applying themselves to on a daily basis is actually, you know, really having a social impact and, and making a big difference. So I think there's a real space for companies like yours at the moment, um, and especially with the advancement of, you know, data tools and um, you know, processes and where we are now, you know, I guess it's kind of more achievable than ever before. Um, but, but talk us through then a little bit about, I suppose, what really inspired you to, to start Connect Earth as a, as a business? Um, I know you said you like the idea of social impact, but, you know, what, what sort of made you kind of put your all your eggs in one basket and, and build that business? And, and what sort of specific challenges are you trying to address within the sustainability space? 
Yeah, totally. And uh, great question. And even on, uh, I think the recruitment side, uh, which which you touched on earlier, I think it's just, it's one of the, if you're a talented and passionate uh, technical person in the data or, or engineering space, um, you just see tons of people right now, really talented people flocking towards climate. Mm. Um, and we've just been able to recruit such a rock star team uh, not only, I guess, by our processes and what we do as a company, but fundamentally by the mission in knowing that people are working uh, on on problems that are bigger than themselves. Yeah. And I think that's what kind of gets us out of bed every morning. Yeah. Uh, personally, I've, I've been in, involved in the climate space for, for a while uh, through, uh, as I mentioned, Amazon, through my pr- previous business and, uh, and, and throughout university and my studies. Um, but, uh, but fundamentally, there was two, which I touched upon before, two main insights that drove us to do what we're doing now. The first one is we started off our journey knowing me and Alex that we wanted to do our part in helping solve climate change, which we thought was one of the biggest challenges of our time. Um, so what we did was we talked to tons and tons of people. I remember early days messaging 500 people on LinkedIn. We, that was our task, me and Alex, in, in, in our first few months of, of starting and speaking Working to recruitment. as much. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I'd be very good at it. But um, talking to as much people as possible. And, and we got the opportunity to talk to some of the heads of sustainability at some of the biggest companies in the world. And what they were indicating to us was um, there's this uh, notion in, in carbon accounting called scope one, scope two, and scope three, which is when you're looking at the carbon emissions of your own company, scope one and two are the emissions. Scope one is the ones emissions you directly release into the air. If you drive a car, if you burn something. Scope two is the emissions that you have from electricity use. Scope three is the emissions you have from pretty much interacting with any other company um, as a result of, for example, supply chain, uh, logistics, delivery, it depends on, on how it works. But the main insight that we found was talking to these really, really big companies and consumers, most emissions, 60 to 80% of carbon emissions come from scope three, meaning your interactions with other companies and suppliers, unless you are uh, pretty much uh, electricity, basically provider, generator, you're, you're into really energy intensive things. Mm. So, um, the thing is, it then makes it really hard to do your carbon accounting as a big business, as a small business, as a consumer, when you're so dependent on other people and other people's data in order to understand your own emissions. And one of the fundamental things that we understood when, when we were like, okay, we, we want to help consumers and businesses better understand their emissions because the first step towards reducing is understanding and measuring. Um, and that's where a, a huge part of the data part comes. Um, but it's it's really hard to do so if you if you have to rely on on, on other people's. And this is where carbon models and, and the data science aspect is is so important, yeah. right? Yeah. But the learning from there is your financial platforms are actually one of the best places to understand your carbon emissions, because if sixty to eighty percent of your emissions are coming from your suppliers, and this scope three point one, which is purchase goods and services. Where can you find your, the best place to find your purchase goods and services is the financial platforms, your banking platforms, your accounting platforms, what you invest in. Um, And so that's what started our route towards how can we make tools that help businesses and consumers better understand the emissions of what they buy? Because fundamentally, it leads to most of their emissions. And the second learning we had in in my previous business, I remember being in in Edinburgh um, next to some of also the the Brewdog pubs and some of the, the biggest kind of climate protests that there were in the UK and being surrounded by, I think it was 20,000 people um, really, really caring about climate change and wanting change, um, but fundamentally don't not understanding how their daily actions really affect climate change and having no data. Yeah. If, um, if we had carbon labels on everything that we, that we bought, it'd be very easy. 
but um, obviously scaling that is very hard. And so um, again, your purchase goods and services, your bank account is one of the best ways to understand where your emissions hotspots are okay. and your carbon magnitude is uh, in an and in that way, better understanding and reducing your total emissions. So those two key learnings drove us to um, our product now, which is the APIification of these carbon models and data. What we have is uh, Connect Earth. We have open documentation. We've always been very developer first. We're builders at heart. And uh, we've made it really easy that through one line of code, you can estimate the carbon emissions data of transactions, of investments, of companies, access carbon offsets. We really are just looking to become that infrastructure, allowing anyone that wants to build climate-related products to do so very easily without having to hire a team of carbon modeling PhDs uh, okay. um, and abstract you from the necessary knowledge many times to, to be able to build really impactful climate products. And in that way, also have that available to consumers. If you make it easier for builders, they can then show consumers their carbon footprint through, for example, their bank accounts, their financial platforms. So um. Yeah, in around a, a year and a half, uh, we've been able to uh, show carbon footprint estimates in uh, to more than a quarter of a million users in their bank accounts. Wow. Uh, and we're currently engaging in some really interesting POCs and, and with clients to, to further scale that impact. But I think fundamentally helping increase the base level of carbon knowledge and ability to reduce for consumers and small businesses is, is kind of two of our really big goals as a company. Fantastic. Yeah, it makes makes a huge amount of sense. And um, I totally agree with you. I think it's it's one of these topics now that we're all definitely aware of. And I think, generally speaking, there is a lot of goodwill there and people wanting to do the right thing. Um, but I do think you're right, a lot of it boils down to, you know, I guess, the level of ignorance to a degree that people don't really understand you know, what they're doing. You know, they haven't got the access to the data to really understand um how their actions on a daily basis be that consumers and businesses what impact that actually does have you know in terms of the carbon i mean i was just thinking actually when you were talking there and i was thinking about us as a business of you know scope one scope two scope three you know unless like say you're a huge business that's got a massive amount of servers i guess scope two is relatively minimal with a lot of businesses and actually scope three you know we we as a business you know we do have i think quite um positive incentives where you know for every placement that we make we'll plant 10 trees and we'll have you know a, a sort of focus towards adop uh, adopting it that way but but a lot of the work that we do is is physical events as well you know and, and um we've got offices based up in the north and i'll very often catch a train up to the north without necessarily thinking about actually the kind of carbon footprint that's going to have and on that and i think if there was a platform out there that kind of gave that information that data more readily to businesses then um yeah you know that's that's kind of the way you affect change isn't it ultimately so um yeah i think it's a, it's a great idea to be that kind of enabler for, for, for um, businesses like you say um so how do you want to see uh, you know sustainability and carbon accounting evolving in the coming years because i guess it's it's one of those areas where advances in technology and data science data analytics have kind of made it more accessible and I suppose more accurate now than it ever has been before. Um, so, yeah, how are you kind of what sort of exciting trends are you seeing within that, and how do you think Connect Earth is positioned to you know adapt to those uh, changes? Totally. Um, I think um, I'll just mention two. Um, I think very different aspects that I think are fundamentally revolutionizing a lot of the climate tech space. One of them is more of a tech one, I think maybe more relevant to some of your listeners of what, what has been some of the fundamental changes that have, have led uh, to advances in carbon models. And, and another one is what's pushing the sector towards going, as, especially in Europe, 
uh, to go as fast as possible and why this is becoming a huge priority. There's a perfect storm of incentives and climate regulation that is uh, just making the need for climate-related products very, very high, especially in Europe. So the, the first one, maybe a more on a technical side, is I think you've seen, um, I like to think a lot of programming languages just as general languages, right? And so it's a lot easier to interact with people if they're speaking the same language. I think Python has helped enable in the data science space so much, um, so much improvements and, uh, and uh, innovation uh, primarily because now engineers that are working on the front end on the back end can communicate in the same language that data scientists and the mean machine learning folks. I agree. So it's been a, a universal language that has united different domains in the tech sector. Yeah. And what's really interesting is this is actually happening in carbon modeling as well. So carbon modeling courses specifically, for example, in EEIO, our carbon modeling scientists we got from a, a university uh, reference um, Yentl is a really, really talented uh, EEIO and carbon modeling person who, uh, whose courses and a lot of now carbon modeling courses are being taught in Python. So having a similar language where carbon modeling people can speak to data scientists, can speak to back-end engineers, can speak to front-end, I think is causing um, just such a, a speed up in the amount of communication and innovation that can happen at a given time. Yeah. And so I think it's, uh, yeah, th th thank, <laughs> thank uh, the, the creator of Python for, uh, for the unification of, of a lot of different domains and, and just m making it easier to have multidisciplinary action uh, on one thing. Yeah. Th the second thing is, um, is climate tech regulation. So you have, um, right now, it's really kind of clever how, it, how it's done, but Already, um, asset managers in, in Europe have to report on the emissions of their investments. And what's interesting is um, it's actually somewhat sometimes unexpected because as an asset manager, an investor uh, above a certain kind of revenue and, and, and amount of assets, they're expected to, um, to report on sustainability features of their investments and carbon emissions. Many times the investments that they've done don't actually have carbon emissions reports. And so you'd wonder, okay, why why are they being asked and incentivized to do this? And I think what the Europe and, and their regu uh, regulators have fundamentally understood is a lot of powers hold by investors. And if you start the regulation from the top, it'll trickle down uh, in pressure. So right now there is a direct uh, regulation and then also just market pressure for companies to report on their emissions because then their investors can report on their emissions. Okay, so yeah. SFDR and TCFD are some of the regulations that have really pushed this on a really interesting um, perspective. And the same is with banks. When a bank gives, and that's where our Connect Report product comes, we um, have a white-labeled solution that banks can uh, integrate to allow their business customers to create compliant carbon emissions reports. This is really helpful towards the business, and I'll explain some of the, the regulation in Europe around kind of businesses, but also for the bank. Because now the bank has to understand what are the emissions that I have from giving a loan towards one of my business customers mm. or investing or providing services to them. Because mm. I have to report that as my financed emissions, which are 100 times bigger than my operational ex emissions, offices, et cetera. And fundamentally, um, I can't it's climate risk to, my, to myself as a, as a bank financial provider if yeah, I don't yeah. understand the emissions or empower uh, my customers to understand their emissions. Mm. So it's a really interesting kind of a perfect storm starting in in the investment and asset management financial space. Yeah. That's why we're primarily focused on that. Okay. And then a second wave of regulation coming um, through uh, CSR, CSRD, which is uh, coming in, in a few years in Europe. It'll mandate any company above 250 employees to report on their emissions. This okay. has never happened and above a certain amount of revenue. 
I'm originally from Spain, and if you ask a business what are carbon emissions, uh, you're likely not to get much answers. <laughs> so there's a really f fundamental need for a lot of these tools that simplify the understanding and, 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 and the ability to report on your carbon emissions. And because of this whole scope three thing that I mentioned, even if you're a company below 250 employees when it hits, if 60 to 80% of the emissions of the companies that do report are from their suppliers, they're going to be asking all the companies that they work with for their carbon emissions mm -hmm. and reports. There's market pressure downstream as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. how this, uh, the, regu the regulatory kind of uh, status in, in Europe is fascinating. Mm. It's creating a lot of downwards pressure basically for everyone to have better carbon emissions data. And it's uh, fueling a new wave of, of climate techs to be able to supply the tools so, so that companies, businesses, asset managers can actually report on these emissions and understand them because right now it's actually really difficult to do so. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know that about the specific incoming regulations. So that's that's kind of European-based companies as of next year, is it? That's, that's coming into effect. Yeah, and um, there's um, some specifics. So uh, some of it is still obviously being tweaked and, and adjusted. Um, and uh, and one interesting thing that's also kind of planned after that, after the, like, almost like the the triple, um, the triple effect is a carbon border tax. So having taxes uh, based on the emissions intensity of specific products imported into the EU. Yeah. But um, on, on the part that you mentioned, so yeah, it's CS, uh, CSRD is focused on, on European companies, but it also um, uh, affects companies that have a certain percentage or amount of revenue within Europe. Okay. So even if you're based in the US or another kind of country, um, if you have operations in Europe, it's likely you're also going to be affected. Wow, interesting. It'd be interesting to see how well we can affect that into <laughs> into international countries like say like the us and, and how well that goes down how would you say where, where would you say europe sits within that i mean just just listening to you speak then i'm kind of thinking thank god there are these regulations because um yeah whilst i'm not necessarily always a fan of bureaucracy and regulations for the sake of regulations of which you know europe is historically very good at creating i think you know when you, you hear about those kind of regulations you think thank god that they're actually there because you know, it is, it's raising awareness, isn't it? Like I said, when, when people have to start reporting on this, that's having the trickle-down effect that you, that you want, like I say, upstream and downstream from, um, you know, a lot of the financial institutions and, and their suppliers and so on and so forth. So I think it's it's fantastic that this is coming. And I think it's great that you, you know, sort of spotting these trends and are ahead of the crest of the curve to, um, you know, to, to make the most of it in terms of what you build. But um, where do Europe sit in relation to the rest of the world, do you think, on this sort of area? Are they are these regulations relatively pioneering in relation? To, you said it's not happened any, before, but in relation to, you know, I guess further west and, and further east, uh, where, where do we sit on that? Uh, Europe is definitely leading the pack here. I think they've taken a lot of very bold moves with the amount of regulation and exactly how it's structured on an incentive level. Okay. I mean, how the, the, the trickiest part comes from this whole scope three part, right? The reason that they've had to create this kind of incentive system and uh, Europe is, first of all, to answer your question, Europe is the leader and uh, a lot of countries, the, the UK is following very similar uh, path towards, uh, towards uh, the rest of kind of the EU. And uh, the US is also kind of soon following in a lot of this. But I think most countries look towards Europe when it comes to this regulation because they're the most advanced in this and also are taking kind of the most bold moves, which other countries I think are, are very much observing. But um, yeah, just f some phenomenal advances there. And the reason that this has to be the way that, that it has panned out is because of this whole scope three part, which is if, um, if a company within Europe outsources its supply chain 
towards another continent or country, it's actually very hard to actually understand kind of your, your, your total emissions. And so you need to make sure that everyone is just constantly aligned on every side, yeah. that the investors and asset managers have regulatory and market pressure, that they downstream towards these companies, that these companies then become responsible and just say, don't just say, hey, that's my supply chain, I, I don't have to understand it, yeah. but that there is um, ownership and accountability across not just your company, but who you decide to have as a supplier mm-hmm. and having the, the right regular, it's, it's a global problem just because of that scope three and supply chain part. Yeah, yeah. I think one thing that we see just looking into the carbon modeling part, and it's actually really interesting on a data science perspective and so much applications because carbon modeling typically is very rule-based, um, but the outcomes obviously is data science. You can see obviously what are the averages, what are outliers, how can I use machine learning and data science to better understand and predict different things. So there's just such a, a, a good intersection of both. But one common um, mistake that happens when you look at the average, you Google the average emissions of a person in the UK, is they take the total emissions of the UK, they divide it by the amount of people. And the thing is, if the UK is outsourcing X percentage of their supply chain in the car industry to another country, they're just saying that they're not responsible for that. Mm. So um. One of the trends has been towards consumption-based emissions, looking at um, just tracking as a consumer globally, um, what, a, what emissions do I have and what's my dependency on other countries for what I buy? If I buy a car in the UK, but it comes from Germany, Italy, um, making sure we take into account the, the full scope and we don't just blame other countries and say, hey, it's their problem, mm-hmm. but it's really our problem as, as consumers and our responsibility for if we buy something responsible for the emissions of where that came from. Absolutely, yeah. It's uh, it is fascinating, and and I guess the UK we are historically a, a pretty prolific importer of, of all goods, especially you know you look at like the Far East and in terms of China and how much of, of the products that we we buy that comes from there really does sort of beg that question. It's quite it must be quite a, a very difficult thing to to police though in those businesses, those countries where they have lesser regulation and you know lesser visibility on on their data. Like for instance, China, let's say. You know, um, and and I guess not sort of casting aspersions here, but China are very often not particularly uh, keen to share specific data that relates to to, to their country. Um, how how do you police that if you're kind of a you know a company and, and you've got a supply chain that, that comes from, let's say China in particular? Um, yeah, it's very difficult for you to get that data. How how would you go about clarifying that whole situation? Yeah, it's, um, it's, there's a variety of different ways. Um, and I think the, the hard part many times is it's hard to have a, a real ground truth unless you're on the ground measuring the total gases released in every process and the dependencies. It's very hard to track. So what, what we've built together with some of the leading university research groups is there's different classifications of data when it comes to carbon modeling. And it makes it really interesting as a data science topic because um, you can't sometimes necessarily say one is better than the other. They're just different types and methodologies somewhat. Okay. And so it's, I, I'm really interested in, in how the climate space and carbon modeling space can progress forwards together with a lot of the learnings within data science in the past kind of five, 10 years. I studied AI and software engineering in university and the models that they have now with GBT and the large language ones are completely different to what we told, got told uh, was the, the best deep learning models yeah. not so long ago. So seeing what the intersection, how would they can kind of help each other best is, is super interesting. But what we work on a lot with um, carbon modeling scientists is something called EIO, which is called Enver- Environmentally Extended 
input-output models. What they do is they calculate proxies for the average emissions for spending in a specific product category or industry in more than um, in multiple countries and regions. So you can make it multi-region. At Connect Earth, what we do is we find the average proxy and carbon emissions estimates, which is spend-based, for buying a whole host of different tra in transaction categories and industries in more than 49 countries and regions, mapping the multi-region part, which means if I buy a car in the UK, we're also taking into account its dependency on purchases in Germany, in Italy, um, just the, the global dependency and, and mapping the global average supply chains. Okay. So partly, um, and happy to jump into EEIO anytime, but um, conscious this uh, might be, uh, I'm not sure if it's so interesting to, towards your your um, your audience, but the, the other part, so what that's really helpful with is, hey, if your supplier is not giving you data, or if they are giving you data, but you're not so sure of it, you can use some of these global proxies to actually estimate what is the average in benchmark and what should I be expecting okay. from these uh, from these average emissions. And if they don't give it you give it to you, you can actually use these EEIO Those benchmarks uh, okay. method. Yep. And it's one of the leading ways that you, that companies globally and some of the largest companies in the world are using to report on their supply chain. So um, it comes down to benchmarking to see if it's accurate, and second of all, having a really clear data classification. If um if a company tells a supplier tells you this is my total emissions and that's it, um it's not very trustworthy because you don't know what's in that whole kind of bag of worms. Mm. So um having very clear classification, the greenhouse gas protocol is a good example. They classify data really specifically and say you have to have uh, reporting on this part, this part, this part, this part. So making sure that's complete. And I think where the data science aspect is really interesting is we have uh, tons of outlier detection. So we have a whole pipeline that after capturing the carbon emissions data on companies, passing it through, we see, okay, how does this um, deviate from average and uh, what's expected within that industry? How can we catch outliers early? Because it could be a misreporting problem. It could be that they're really green or they're not close to average. Or it could also be that there's a typo in a report, which is very, very common. You're always going to expect around a 1% to 3% kind of typo error. Uh, within carbon emissions data and reports. And you have to have the data science tools to be able to filter, process, and uh, and classify a lot of this. It's really, really interesting. And I, I, I genuinely find it fascinating. I could talk about it for hours, but I, um, like you said, it, we could probably go so far down a wormhole that we uh, we, we struggle to find our way back to, to where right. we are. But um, but no, I, 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 say I genuinely find it very interesting. And I think it's, yeah, it, that would make a lot of sense. Obviously, there are those kind of ways of, of assuming that data in a logical fashion, um, you know, if logistically it's not uh, not not forthcoming, um, but you know, just 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 listening to you speak, I can you know, you obviously make a great leader because you're really passionate about what you're talking about, and I think that's a, a hallmark of a, a you know a strong leader is somebody that can really you know kind of take somebody on that journey, and your passion for obviously what you do, and and obviously your expertise and what you do as well it must be very infectious, and and you know, get people to kind of come on that journey with you. So let's talk a little bit about your your um, management style, your leadership style, I guess, and um, you know, the diary of a CTO is all about kind of how you, how you lead, you know, and how you, how you, um, you know, get, get the best out of people. So um, talk us through when you've obviously built this team from scratch, you've, you mentioned having this mission, you think has been a real kind of USP to, to engage the best candidates, which I, I definitely can see from a lot of the conversations we have, but how, um, how do you go about scaling a team from scratch are there particular approaches, particular processes that you, you look for, I guess, in terms of how you structure the team, but also the, the people that you look for and are there any sort of core 
attributes and characteristics that you might look for, you know, within within a team, irrespective of the, uh, you know, the role. Um, so yeah, talk us through a little bit about how you've kind of built the team and scaled it to date. Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think um, it's it's something at, at this stage. So we're we're around four, 15 people uh, at the moment. We're looking to pretty much go uh, above 20, 25 employees uh, in the next year, um, and have some uh, some kind of yeah. We're active, very actively hiring at the moment, mainly for engineering roles and then kind of data science and, and carbon modeling roles. Um, some of these roles, it, being in a pioneering space, some of these roles a lot of times just didn't exist. So hiring our carbon modeling scientist, someone who's a specialist in Python and EIO, was one of the hardest things because there's no guidance on it. A lot of times that job title kind of doesn't really exist a lot of times. And uh, it, I spent, I think, three, four months contacting hundreds of people on LinkedIn in some of the academic courses. A lot of them were finishing their PhDs. Uh, a lot of them were looking to go into academia, just trying to source. And if they weren't available, contacting some of their um, their colleagues within uh, within university to try and uh, ask if, if they're available. So there's, there's a, a really big, I think, now need for carbon modeling. People in the intersection of environmental sciences and data science. Um, also, as a result, because sometimes that doesn't necessarily exist, you need two people which is an environmental scientist and a data scientist that's a lot of data scientists we've been seeing have a big passion for wanting to get into environment and have an impact. Um, and I think when it comes to scaling our team, initially it was just uh, me and Alex. It was a, a lot of grunt work. I think uh, there's a certain escape velocity you have to hit as a startup where the, the, the founding team has to go very fast and scale the company to get you out of orbit pretty much and 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 make this into to something but after that it's kind of almost an anti-pattern if the founders become the blockers so it becomes really really big on trust you need to be able to hire people that can take initiative that you can trust to take big decisions you're a small company doing a, a lot of things and you want to make sure things are done done right so um i think trust is maybe one of the biggest things that we see as we scale our team um and uh, I think there's two avenues typically, and we're clarifying this right now with our employees as well, is um, people can either become experts in their field. In Amazon, it was you become software engineer one, two, three, or you become a manager. You go into technical product management, et cetera. Yeah. Just knowing very clearly with your employees what route they want to take on a regular basis can help you understand how you progress the company um, a lot better. But um, yeah, I think fundamentally being in the climate space, I think we've had the luxury that being mission-driven has led a lot of really talented people to come to us. Um, and uh, the, the difficult part a lot of times is also filtering through uh, uh, a lot of good candidates. Yeah. A lot of people are passionate, um, but we have to be very restrictive with, with who we hire. We have limited resources and uh, hire very, very talented people, but they can execute in the short term and the long term can become either our senior uh, kind of uh, experts or some of the, the leaders within the business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I totally agree, and I think it's great that you you sort of have those check-in points regularly with your uh, your, your people about which route do you want to go down, and, and like you said, just because you've picked one path doesn't mean you can't necessarily move to the other path. Because um, yeah, obviously, it's, I think Amazon one of those pioneering companies that actually recognised that you know and it was this way in recruitment as well. Actually, you get to a certain level of performance as an individual consultant, and then it was assumed the next step for you was to be a people manager, and you start growing a team because you were good at the job. You know, but it doesn't always stand true that because you're good at the job, you make a good manager. And I think, you know, it's very much the same in technology. You know, very often, I've, 
my 15 years of doing the job, I've had a lot of candidates that come to me and say, well, I feel like I've really hit the, the ceiling where I am because the next step for me, I'm, I'm very passionate, hands-on, IC, you know, I want to stay technically at the coalface, but the next step for me is to move into a management role. I don't really want to do that because I enjoy coding. That's what I want to do. Um, and, you know, the company loses a great asset because they don't have those channels open to them and i think just checking in with people regularly you know are you on the right path do you feel you're on the right trajectory i think that's one of the most important things in in any company can do to retain talent absolutely um so uh yeah yeah i, t- I totally agree with that but would you say is there a, a sort of core thread of characteristics and attributes that you look for would be that sort of competence-based or even attitude based you mentioned trust make big decisions i think that's absolutely massive and that kind of really resonates with me obviously we're a, a relatively early stage business as well and um you know very much like you said the first few years of, of me starting this business is you know pedaling as quickly as we can to get the business up and off the ground and then obviously so we were able to scale and grow and get the right people on board and and i um i very much believe that the kind of people that we, we bring into the team now they're the people that i want want to see here in 10 years time and you know, get those people that, that, that I feel really have those abilities to step into those bigger roles. Um, but yeah, how do you approach that? Are there other particular metrics or characteristics or attributes that you um, you look at for, for all of your employees? Yeah, sure thing. Um, I think it comes down, if, if we look at it on a global level, it comes down to trust. Could you trust this person to be the leader of tomorrow to uh, when given a very big banking uh, cl- client, for example, to be able to answer uh difficult questions and execute exactly on, on what the client needs are and develop the product in, in a way that benefits us in the short term and, and, and long term. Um, trust, I think, is a is the fundamental one, and I think it can be broken down into several different things. The first one is initiative. So we're a small company. Uh, our business goes at the pace that we can take decisions um, without the founders being involved. So at what pace can you, uh, how quickly can you take decisions without any single individual becoming a blocker? Um, and I think part of this goes to, in Agile and Scrum practices, there's a concept of a self-organizing team. Is your team self-organizing? And, and the, the way that you can ensure that is if your developers, your data scientists, your commercial people, your marketing people really fundamentally care about your mission and are willing to take initiative to, if not told, take action uh, towards what's the best for the company and propose things that, that would really fundamentally benefit. I think initiative and self-organizing is a, is a really important part. Obviously, then the, the passion um, piece is, is huge, not only for, I think, climate tech, um, but also the individual uh, domain that they're entering. You have to be passionate about both climate and data science if you're, if you're really going into it. Um, one thing that maybe sometimes is hard is being a very mission-driven company. Um, Everyone is really mission-driven, um, but if you're only in it for, I guess, the mission-driven part and maybe not excelling in some of the other parts, it could be that you're kind of sometimes stunting um, the potential growth uh, because fundamentally it's all connected. We need the data science part to be as, as accurate as possible and as good as possible, the engineering side, to be constantly improving. You have to be co- both really passionate about environment and also your specific expertise. And then one last one, I think, comes down to care. Are you doing, do you do work that you're proud of? And um, in the book Clean Code, which is one of the really popular ones in software engineering, um, Robert C. Martin talks about clean code, meaning does it look like someone that cares wrote it? 
Does the, does the code look like someone cared? And I think that's fundamentally something that we can all kind of understand when we see something. When a product, when a task is done with care and you see someone really put their best effort and really wants it to go well. So I think these are quite high level things, but it requires both domain expertise, but also uh, a set of personality um, qualities that just show that, yeah, you're trustworthy, you care, you want the best for the company, for the team, for, for yourself and, uh, and everyone to grow. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think the, the care piece is, you know, people can't always make the right decisions. Everybody makes mistakes, you know, irrespective of, you know, how bought into the business people are. But if, if people genuinely care and you know they're making the right decisions for the right reasons, you know, that's one of the most important things, isn't it, really? Like I say, it's that, it boils back down to trust, I guess. Again, that, you know, if you trust in people that they're doing the best job they can. Somebody said to me the other day, I can't remember who who, um, uh, who, who the quote was from, but... You know, uh, one of the CTOs I spoke to said that whenever I'm speaking to anybody in my team, I always have it in the back of my mind that, you know, no one comes to work to do a bad job intentionally. You know, they're, they're kind of there for the for the right reasons. And if, if they're not, then they're not the right people to have on the boat, you know, the right people to have in the team. And, um, yeah, I think they're, they're some really strong traits and characteristics that I definitely resonate with. Um Facebook have, um, uh, and, and, and I think that's totally makes so much sense. And I think f- allow, allowing failure is so important yeah. and almost programming and, and uh, organizing your team in such a way that they can fail a lot really faster. The common Facebook phrase is uh, move fast and break things. Yeah. And it sounds like you're being very clumsy, but no, you're just creating some artificial walls internally so that you can crash internally and your clients would never be affected. I think yeah. um, on a geeky side, like having a really good CI/CD, a continuous integration and, and continuous deployment p- pipeline is so important to, to make sure that no matter what code that you deploy, you have these kind of like bullet, it's bulletproof and you have these walls where mm-hmm. you can test crash into things before um, any clients can see it. And just being able to fail fast by having these artificial walls is, is so important. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's the practical element of failure, isn't there? And as far as, like you say, especially when it's a technology system, making sure it's uh, not going to have catastrophic implications. Um, but there's also then the, the cultural piece around failure and how that's perceived within the business. And I think the companies that get that right are the ones that, that like I say, they, they kind of see failure in a really positive light and they reframe it for people that it's not necessarily a bad thing. I always think back to a client that we work with quite a bit, um, albeit a number of years ago now, um, Just Giving, you know, the kind of... Um, digital kind of um, charity platform and uh, I always remember when I went to their offices there they, they spoke about how they have this thing on a Monday morning called the church of fail <laughs> where uh, everybody has to get up on a Monday morning and basically say something that they did wrong the week before um, and yeah the whole premise is you're turning failure into something that's celebrated and, and reframed in a positive light because everybody then can learn from that rather than you know, sweep it under the carpet and it happened you know, it's actually a knowledge transfer around what went wrong? How can we address that next time? Very cool. And it was quite cool because uh, they told me it's quite funny because depending on the severity of the thing and how bad it was that they did, the only thing that they, they did at the end when they said what they did wrong, they, they everyone clapped. And then if it was a really bad Amazing. thing, they, they so they couldn't sit down until everyone had finished clapping. So if it was a really bad thing, they would keep them up there for ages, <laughs> just clapping, and yeah. then eventually they could sit down. But it was made me laugh. It was very funny. cool. So. Um, yeah, but Nick, look, I've really, really enjoyed the chat. I think it's been uh, you know, a fascinating episode and, um, yeah, like super um, passionate about what you're doing and uh, I, I find it yeah, very interesting indeed and I think uh, it's uh, such a, 
a worthwhile mission and you know i kind of thank god that there's people out there like you that, that really take it upon themselves to apply their skills and expertise to solve these bigger problems because quite frankly if there weren't people like you then you know we'd all be in trouble so it's great that you're uh, you're using your uh, your uh, your skills in in a way that impacts and benefits us all so thank you very much for that and um thank you again for coming on the episode and, and being a part of it and i uh, i for one will definitely be keeping my eyes very close to um you know connect earth and seeing how you guys continue to grow and evolve and uh keeping track of your progress as time goes on and uh, i wish you all the very best uh best for the future thanks a lot really appreciate it cool take care thank you